Welcome, everybody, to another exciting episode of the Into the Impossible podcast, featuring a legend, a famous legend, maybe some say an infamous legend in the field of cosmology, and in particular, no pun intended, dark matter research and objections to dark matter, and that's Dr. Mordechai Mati Milgram of the Chaim Weizmann Institute of, in Rehovot Israel. He joined us in late in the afternoon, evening, early evening in Israel while I was here in California. And he's really, as I say, a legend in cosmology because he has perhaps the most seriously taken of all objections to dark matter is his modified Newtonian dynamics theory. The modified Newtonian dynamics does just that. It adjusts certain parameters, as Bunty will describe in this video, in order to match the observations that astronomers have known about since the time of Vera Rubin, who, fun fact, was trained here at UC San Diego by none other than my late great colleague, Margaret uh, Burbage, on how to do spectroscopy. And Margaret was doing rotation curves too, but she never really thought much of it and really didn't pursue it the same way Vera Rubin did. And you'll hear about uh, other applications of MOND and challenges to MOND from audience questions, uh, such as those from friends on Twitter or on my YouTube community tab. So reminder, you can always find out what I'm up to by going to one of those two locations, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube and on Twitter and occasionally on Instagram, but mostly not. Uh, and I also send up my newsletter, briankeating.com slash list. You can join that. You may uh, be entered to win a little bit of space schmutz, some dark matter from our cosmos, namely uh, dust from a meteorite. See the website for more details. US entries only, I'm afraid. It's too difficult to ship overseas uh, and too expensive. Uh, but at any rate, we talked about many different things, including the famous bullet cluster, superfluid dark matter popularized by none other than past guest and upcoming guest Sabina Hassenfelder. Look for her episode on her newest book, Existential Physics, coming soon. And we talked about his work with the relativistic version of Mond, which is called Tevez and other things with Jacob Beckenstein, who was really the forerunner of Hawking's uh, Hawking radiation uh, ideas uh, and the black, black, black hole entropy theorem. So you'll hear a little bit about uh, Jacob Beckenstein and more, including the future. And really what uh, impressed me is his courage. We talk about chutzpah, uh, and he has a lot of it, and it's healthy, and it's good when used in moderation, as Mati does. So sit back for now. Enjoy this ride into the impossible with a man who is told never to attempt the impossible, but he did it anyway, and you'll find out more about his courage later on this episode. For now, let's go deep into the darkest matters in the universe with Mati Mordecai, uh, Mordecai Milgram. Let's go. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everyone, to a very special edition of the Into the Impossible podcast, featuring yours surely, Dr. Brian Keating of the University of California, San Diego, uh, where I am joined today, remotely joined, from the Weizmann Institute, all the way in Israel, by a very, very legendary figure in the field of cosmology, and especially in the field of searching for dark matter and uh, potential alternatives to dark matter, and even alternatives to our theory of gravity. And that's Professor Mordecai Mutti <coughs> Milgram, who uh, is known to many of you, but uh, I will read his introduction uh, at, at a later date as we go on throughout this conversation. But Mate, uh, Laila Tov, how are you? <laughs> it's evening here, yeah. Early in the morning at San Diego, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, so you might hear some kids getting ready to go to summer camp. Um, so I was introduced to you many, many decades ago now. I mean, you're very, very famous in the field of, of cosmology. Uh, but most recently by a mutual friend over Schilling, who was a guest on the podcast. Uh, I'll put a link to that somewhere up here or over there. I don't know, in, in the video. <clears throat> and then on audio, you'll be able to find it for his new book called The Elephant in the Universe, uh, which is called, subtitle is 100 Year Search for Dark Matter. And he mentions uh, you, he actually mentions you in the very same paragraph almost as he mentions my late great colleague, uh, Professor Margaret Burbage, uh, who was the mentor and friend to Vera Rubin. 
And I want to start first by uh, talking when Vera Rubin visited UC San Diego, where I am, she worked with Margaret and Margaret actually taught her how to do rotation curve analysis. So I want to start with a little bit of history. Um, the idea of modified Newtonian dynamics, MOND, what is it? And how did the idea come to you? So uh, basically, you may know, and the audience may know that the, one of the most central questions, puzzles in astronomy, in cosmology today, is what most of the universe is made of. So the, in very few words, uh, what, what happens is when you study galaxies and you study the motions of constituents in those galaxies, like the motion of stars and gas, and we use this motion to determine the gravitational pull of the whole galaxy on this constituent, we find that the gravitational pull is much stronger than one, one calculates just uh, taking the observed mass distribution in, in, uh, in uh, those galaxies and calculating the gravitational force using standard dynamics, which is the theory of Newton and also general relativity. In other words, the, there is a large discrepancy between the gravitational pull that is needed to explain the motions of uh, constituents in galaxies and in systems of galaxies, the discrepancy between this and what the observed matter in those galaxies can supply in, in the way of gravity. Now, I took another fork at the time. This was uh, the late, late 1970s, uh, early 80s. And uh, with a proposal that the, the problem, the discrepancy does not result from the, the presence of uh, yet undetected matter, but rather from the fact that we're not using correctly the laws of physics to calculate gravity. So that's that, an alternative would be, okay, you're, you're using, let's say, Newtonian dynamics, which is a combination of the Newton's law of gravity and the law of inertia, you use this combination of laws to calculate how, how, uh, how stars should move in galaxies. And they actually defy this result by, by moving much faster than you've calculated. So, okay, maybe you are not using the right laws, or maybe the, these laws are correct, but only have a limited uh, range of validity. But after all, we know that they have been tested successfully tested in the laboratory in the solar system. So the, the, there are large phenomena that are well explained by these laws. But perhaps in galaxies and systems of galaxies and in the universe at large, this is not so. So that, that is essentially the, the, the main idea. Then you ask how it occurred to me. So I ought to mention perhaps that, uh, well, first of all, in my background, I did my PhD in particle physics. The early 70s, and then I, I switched field to astrophysics. And initially, for several years, I worked in so called high energy astrophysics, having to do with uh, explosive or cataclysmic uh, phenomena, such as black holes, neutron stars, X ray emitting stars, and so on. But uh, towards the late 70s, I decided to switch fields, and I looked around, and uh, this issue of the discrepancy that I mentioned before just began to rear its head uh, in a very meaningful way, partly due to, of course, observation of Vera Rubin and Agu, but also one should mention, alongside with the contribution of Rubin, that also works in the Netherlands using radio telescopes, not the optical telescopes that they are open, but the radio telescopes, who also measure the rotation perspective. And the, the results of all of them showed quite clearly that uh, this problem exists. So this struck me as an interesting field or problem to start working on when I start you know, make this decision to switch fields. And I also happened to be going to about to be going to a sabbatical at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. And Princeton is the center of uh, galaxy dynamics, you might say. There, mm -hmm. there still are, but uh, there, were, there are quite a few world experts in galaxy dynamics. So my decision was just to go and uh, spend this sabbatical year to study the field 
prepare myself to embark on, on this uh, on this issue now uh, to tell the truth for, from the beginning I, I had a sort of a, a, a guiding uh, idea so I didn't just go deciding okay I'll work on this field but there was something about those rotation curves that struck me. Apparently, not have the same effect on others, but anyway, to me, it appeared quite uh, interesting. And, and there was that. Well, let, let me just explain what the rotation curve is. So, rotation curve is basically a measurement of the rotation of, you know, that in these galaxies, stars and gas move in more or less circular motion. It's not exact, but more or less circular, and they move in, in a disk and in a plane. So, so it's a curve that describes the measurement of the rotational speed of stars, let us say, or gas in a galaxy as a function of the, of, of the distance from the center of the radius. This would be very analogous to, say, uh, telling us what, what is the rotational speed of the planets around the sun when you plot them against the distance from the sun, so the radius of the orbit. And suddenly, as, as you go further and further outside the galaxy, you, you expect this rotational velocity to go down this radius. Just as you find in the solar system that the rotational speed of, of the planets becomes lower and lower as you go to the outer and outer planets. So the rotational speed of Mercury is higher than you can go out of Venus, the Earth, Mars, and so on. The rotational speed always decreases. And people expected that to happen in galaxies as well, because you are going further further outside from the galaxy. And the fact was that the measured velocity did not go down. They sort of remained flattish. They tended to, they went up at first, and then they didn't change much as you went out with radius. And, and that, that, the fact that the velocity stayed high and did not go down is, is the basis for the, for the discrepancy which I mentioned before. So the calculated velocity was going down. The measured velocity was not going down. It stayed, stayed up and uh, just the difference was to fix a discrepancy, which, as I said, is uh, standardly explained with dark matter. But another thing, I, you know, I, I remember telling myself, okay, if it's due to dark matter, then dark matter is there, you know, it could be more, it could be less, it could, its density could, uh, you know, change in different ways in different galaxies. Why should there, there be this apparently universal behavior that the rotation curve stays flat. Okay, it can happen with dark matter, why not? That's not conflict with dark matter, but to me it was a, a question mark. And then I said to myself, well, maybe it's not dark matter. Maybe there is some uh, general law that dictates this, that the rotation curve should stay flat. This is, this is actually... Uh, I mentioned my guiding uh, sort of introduction to the field. And when I went to Princeton, in fact, I, 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 uh, I came across the idea which finally started my working on MON and so on, only towards my stay there. So for the whole year, indeed, I just studied the field, learning about galaxies, how they behave, and so on, but always with a view to finding perhaps some underlying uh, modification of the laws of, of physics that would give rise to this behavior. Mm -hmm. And often, oftentimes when I give a, when I have a guest on to talk about um, say dark matter or uh, even specifically talking about uh, Vera Rubin in particular, I get emails from her estate or sorry, from Zwicky's uh, relative. So I get emails from, or, or text messages or, or, uh, comments on my videos, uh, saying that Vera Rubin, you know, it was not involved. It really wasn't her discovery. It was all my father's Zwicky. Um, and I wonder you, you talk, obviously you've been speaking mostly about rotation curves, but in your, uh, in the early days, the earliest days, of course, Wiki 
was, of course, the, you know, the person who coined the term in German, at least, I think uh, Govert uh, convinced me that it was actually a Dutch physicist, Captain, who coined it in English uh, for some reason, and then Ort, etc. But why start with rotation curves? Why not start as Wiki did with the dynamics of clusters, which are also the, you know, kind of most massive bound gravitational objects in the universe? Why start with galaxy rotation curves instead of clusters as Wiki did? So, so the apology for this should not be mine. It was the blame of the whole community. My, what happened in the 30s, Tricky indeed uh, pointed out, to his satisfaction at least, that again, the galaxies that are the constituents of clusters of galaxies also, not also, but move with, velo with velocities higher than expected. When expected means that uh, what you calculate, this is a, this is an elliptical galaxy, but uh, there is also a transparency of a cluster of galaxies somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So, but that, that's an elliptical galaxy. It's not. It's not a cluster. Right. Of galaxies. But uh, at any rate, so Ricky pointed out that uh, yeah, the velocities in, of galaxies in clusters are much too high to be explained uh, by the by the pool of the gravitational pool produced just by the observed matter in those clusters. And then he said, okay, to explain this, he, he also invoked dark matter. But what, what happened to this idea in between the 30s and let's say mid, mid to late 70s, it, was just, it just disappeared and nobody talked about it. We can only speculate about the reasons. But I suspect that People just felt that uh, the system were not understood so well, so as to to actually infer this. So, you know, it happens many times in astrophysics uh, that, that some measurements are misinterpreted, incorrect, or maybe they, they, they just appear to them too bold, unjustified. And anyway, whatever the reason was, it was forgotten. I never. Had never heard about it uh, before. And uh, in addition, I think the rotation just really brought home the problem to the community in much sharper terms because rotation curves are more accurately measured. So I'll I, I just say one thing you know, in clusters, okay, what, what we can measure are just one component of the velocities galaxies in a cluster. You know, we use Doppler, Doppler effect to measure velocities, and that gives you only the component of the velocity along the line of sight. Right. But to actually determine uh, the gravitational pull on an object, you, you need its orbit. It's not enough to have its, its uh, you know, one component of its velocity. And you, you didn't have that in clusters. And so, but in, in rotation curves, you do, because, because you know that the motion <coughs> is circular, and by looking at the ellipticity of the galaxy on the sky, you can tell what it, what its inclination is to the line of sight. So you can you can you can uh, translate just this measured uh, one component of the velocity to the full orbit. So in, in the case of rotation curves, you actually do have the full orbit, and it tells you exactly, or at least to higher and much higher accuracy, what the actual gravitational pull. So so that may have been part of. Why people may have said, okay, you know, maybe the components of the velocity in other directions not known. Or, uh -huh. uh, so, so it did bring, bring the issue. Uh, but maybe also the, you know, the uh, was the, the time was um, more right for this. Uh, there were more people interested in galaxy dynamics in the community and so on. So it fell on on more. So, um, again, going back to, you know, how I came to have you on the podcast today, uh, we go to the book by Govert Schilling, who features you extensively throughout it. And um, again, this is this is coming into the work um, that is really, you know, kind of uniquely identified with with you, I would say, which is this modification 
And what he talks about, he says, I came across the work of Mordecai Milgram, probably in the 1988 book, Dark Matter by Wallace and Karen. Here was someone with a fresh take on a nagging cosmic mystery. While astronomers were becoming convinced that flat rotation curves of galaxies and the dynamics of clusters could only be explained by assuming that the universe was dominated by dark matter, Milgram took another approach. He tried to change the laws of physics. Now, here was something heroic. So first of all, um, besides the fact that you're a Sabra, uh, what, what gave you the, the chutzpah to not only take on, you know, uh, the changing the laws of physics, but take on Isaac Newton, uh, you know, who's considered by many the father of modern physics, uh, if not all, all of science. So what gave you that confidence um, to go, uh, as I always like to ask, what gives you the confidence to go into the impossible, the namesake of this of this podcast? Uh, how did you, you know, come to say, well, actually, it's going to be even more important to go and change the laws of physics? Well, as to chutzpah, to tell the truth, I didn't think at the time, or at least as far as I remember myself, that it was such a chutzpah. Uh, in first, because my background is, is from, from particle physics, and there are people there to explore uh, less, less conventional ideas. And, you know, astrophysics, uh, let's face it, is a more conservative field, I should say. In, in a way, I, I, I you know, I, I say that uh, people like particle physics, physicists invent the tools when astrophysicists use them. So they don't like the tools to be taken away from them. So anyway, whatever mm-hmm. uh, seems to me that the community in astrophysics is more, or at least at the time, had been more conservative, but. Uh, I, I didn't at the time actually thought it, it took uh, a lot of courage to come up with it. I said, well, why not? I mean, if there's this idea, let's try it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We may come back to this issue later. I mean, I was sure that uh, we failed after a short time. But anyway, and, you know, I, I was even sure that uh, if once I came out, is the people will just jump on the wagon and start working on it, and so and I was completely wrong, you know, in this surmise. But at any rate, uh, I I guess that later on, when I already saw what the reaction of people is, it did take more courage than just coming with it. <laughs> before, you know, before I actually knew how people would react, but. Uh, but even then, I, I, I don't ever remember myself dismayed or daunted by this objection. Uh, and I should say that from, from the beginning, I had some very good uh, collaborators, uh, the late Jacob Beckenstein. And, you know, it, it was enough. That, uh, you know, a person mm-hmm. doesn't need too many friends. One or two friends are enough for some <laughs> And I had him, and he expressed a lot of confidence in the idea, so it was enough for me. And yes, after some time. Yeah, I want to get to uh, Jacob in in a bit, but... um... But first, you know, when I think about this this story, uh, my younger listeners may not be as familiar, uh, but there was a, a very famous episode in the history of astronomy where the same person came up with two different approaches to the problem of dark matter. Uh, and that was uh, that was a, a person, a French mathematician, <clears throat> with a very strange first name, Urbain, and the last name, Le Verrier. Yeah. yeah. And he first was the one to <clears throat> take observations and make a prediction that Neptune was causing the anomalous <clears throat> behavior of um of the orbit of uranus which was the farthest planet known at the time turns out that galileo actually accidentally discovered neptune although he didn't realize it in some observations he made of jupiter just completely serendipitously neptune was there in the background and he thought it was a star but anyway besides that uh leverrier he hypothesized that there must be some unseen form of another planet i i you know that is a form of dark matter that was previously unseen that was causing the strange interaction, this tugging on the orbit of, of Uranus and the planet Uranus. And then a few, and and then he was proven right. Uh, He was actually observationally verified and then maybe pushing his luck. 
Uh, he then uh, went out and predicted the explanation of the strange peculiarity of Mercury's orbit, which was another planet uh, that was behaving badly. And he said, this technique worked well for me. So why don't I postulate dark matter is the explanation for Mercury. And he postulated the existence of an unseen planet called Vulcan. Uh, and so he was right. Uh, and then he was wrong. And uh, I wonder, which do you think was a bigger, you know, was there a mistake or blunder? And then maybe you can explain what Einstein did to correct the error of Leverrier uh, and why that was so important. I, well, first of all, it's a very happy analogy with what is happening with dark matter because uh, you see motions, unexplained motion of something uh, in a system that is obviously governed by gravity. So in one case, uh, the, the, the less daring, shall we say, hypothesis of just some other body in the system that you don't see and contributes to the gravity did work. That was the first example you gave. Uh, in the other case, I, I wouldn't call it a mistake. I think it was the right approach. Mm. Not, not just because it succeeded once, but because it was at the time the more straightforward explanation. So it was not, it was, well, it turned out to not to be the right explanation. But you should uh, judge uh, something as being a mistake or not by you know, how things look at the time it was made. Not, you know. Not very clever. So anyway, so the, indeed, so uh, the, the planet uh, Mercury also showed some very small now an anomaly in its behavior. Again, when you calculated the effect of all the known planets and of the sun, of course, on the motion of Mercury, and it, it moved in almost the expected way, but not quite. There was a very small anomaly. The region of the energy. And, and uh, Einstein was working on general relativity, uh, not in order to explain this anomaly, which was not the case in, in my case. <laughs> I did suggest the alternative uh, with, with the prime motivation of explaining the way that method, but that's not the way he thought about it. Einstein had this theory of special relativity in, in 1905. Theory of, special, uh, uh, theory of gravity, Newtonian gravity, does not, uh, does not uh, obey the principles of special relativity. For example, special relativity says that there is nothing that can, uh, can propagate faster than light. And uh, according to the theory of Newton, if you shake uh, an object here, this is felt uh, right away at any distance from that. So, which means that that the effect of gravity, of changes in gravity, in the masses that produce gravity, propagate you know, with infinite speed. That does not include special relativity. So one motivation to Einstein was to find a, a generalization of Newtonian gravity that will adhere to the principle of special relativity. And another motivation was to actually generalize. Okay, so special relativity tells you that Physics looks the same in, 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 in systems that move with respect to each other. So that's, that's relativity. But only if they move at a constant speed with respect to each other. That, that special relativity is about, essentially, about uh, systems moving at a constant speed with respect to each other. And special relativity tells you how the laws of physics uh, look in, in, in those different systems. But I say I wanted to to generalize this to, you know, just general motions. And, so. mm -hmm. and, and it, it turned out to answer both questions uh, in one fell swoop, and then with the introduction of the theory of general relativity, which of course takes its name from the fact that it is generalizing special relativity, but it is also not just this, it is also a, a relativistic theory of gravity. So it is an extension, a generalization of Newtonian gravity, and uh, it does predict small departures from the calculation of Newtonian gravity, even for planets. Now, its effects are very small in the planetary system, because general relativity kicks in or, or, or departs from Newtonian dynamics when you are dealing with velocities that are mm -hmm. near the speed of light, or a fraction, an appreciable fraction of the speed of light. 
with planets in the solar motion, in the solar system move it. Uh, so the Earth moves it about uh, about in 10,000 speed of light. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, but, but it still has a small effect, and, and it turned out to explain it's the Mercury anomaly without without planet. You, you may have heard that people are now talking about Planet Nine. So. Yes. Yeah, we're searching for it with the Simons Observatory and the ACT uh, Common Cosmology Telescope is searching for it. We can see it with microwaves uh, because anything above absolute zero, of course, emits that. And then, yeah, we are looking for Planet Nine, but it's in the opposite direction. It's not <laughs> It's not closer to the sun. Yeah, um, yeah but just saying that it was also invoked to explain some anomalies in the motion of other things. That That's right. Yes. And that's uh, frequently what happens in science. You know, in my channel, I talk about the scientific method as not really existing. There is no one scientific method. Uh, there's multiple approaches. And sometimes you serendipitously come across anomalies. And sometimes that's quite a fruitful way to proceed. And actually, that dovetails nicely into a question uh, by one of my uh, viewers and friends on, on Twitter. Uh, <clears throat> and that's uh, that's a professor in uh, in the UK, Martin Bauer, who studies uh, particle physics, but uh, but Martin asks, um, there are galaxies for which the rotation curves fit the baryonic matter alone. In other words, galaxies that have no dark matter uh, in them. And so he's asking me to ask you, uh, how do such galaxies that only have ordinary baryonic matter, how do they fit in in the context of MOND? So, first of all, uh, I suppose, you know, MOND uh, predicts that uh, discrepancy should kick in only at acceleration below. We, we haven't discussed MOND and what it is and so on yet, because I, I didn't say what MOND is. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, why don't we start with that then, Mordecai, because we don't have, you have, you have to go and you've been very generous with your time. It's getting late there. So let's start with what is MOND and then we'll get into what things are perplexing about MOND in particular, or about non-dark matter uh, uh, candidates such as these galaxies. So first of all, what is MOND? And then I'll show some of the slides that you sent. All right, so the question the question is, okay, if, if I said to try to modify the, the laws of Newton, let us say, uh, so as to explain the, the discrepancies without dark matter, you have to take into account the fact that, as I already mentioned, that these laws have been verified and tested successfully in the solar system and in the lab. So you need to, to, to ask yourself, I mean, what, 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 in the, what, what attribute of the system would tell you that the Newtonian gravity is still correct? Okay, so when it is correct and when you have to replace it with something else. Okay, so in fact, my, my, my issue was I, I looked for different system attributes that you could use to, to differentiate between the solar system where Newton, Newton's laws hold when and galaxies when they don't. So after a long story, uh, I, I pinpointed on the accelerations being the crucial property. So accelerations, accelerations in galaxies are many orders of magnitude smaller than, than what you encounter in the solar system and the lab. So I sort of hinge this discrepancy on, on acceleration, introducing a new constant of nature with the dimension of acceleration. This always happens, you know, when, when we introduce some departure from physics, like quantum physics, it introduced a new constant, the Planck's constant, and in a way, it, it is a marker, it is a, marks the borderline between the validity domain of the old theory, let's call it the classical old theory, and the new theory. So in relativity, this is played by the speed of light in quantum mechanics by Planck's constant. In MON, it is played by this acceleration constant, may not. So, so MON, in essence, says that as long as accelerations in the system are much larger than the same not, which is the case in the laboratory in solar system, uh, standard physics holds very accurately, Newtonian gravity and general relativity. But when you go to much lower acceleration, uh, there, is a there is a departure. And uh, well, yes, this equation actually summarizes the, the departure. So I don't know if I should explain it, but uh, it's one, one way of putting it. 
you, you see this mu there, if you just ignore the, the whole thing with the mu of A over A naught, you get F over M equals A, which is just Newton's second law, which is the force divided by mass is the acceleration. Mon introduces this correction, which can be very large. And uh, when the acceleration A becomes much smaller than this A naught, which is the constant of Mon, this mu becomes uh, much smaller than one, which means, uh, okay, uh, 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 right, which means that you need, uh, well, okay, F here is the force calculated for Newton. Right. So given the, the force calculated by Newton, when A, this A is much more than A naught, this big, this sort of bold A, yes, becomes much larger than you would get from Newton. And that is how the discrepancy is, is uh, removed. Because it, it, it says that right. the mm -hmm. same Newtonian force actually Mond, uh, tells you that the, the, the force is that large. Okay, so I, I'm now ready to try to answer the, the question you introduced before. I think uh, that, that what I just said is more or less enough. So, of course, there are, I, I don't think he means those galaxies, but there are galaxies, or at least regions in galaxies, where the acceleration are still larger than A0. And right. then you don't expect to see, to see that method. Okay, you know, I mean, you don't expect to see a discrepancy. In the language of dark matter, or those who believe in dark matter, you don't expect to see dark matter. But there have been claims in the, yeah, 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 okay. So my short answer is I just don't believe this. this <laughs> okay. I can I can explain to you why in so many words, but that, you don't believe that there's no dark matter, or you believe that the rotate there's I no. That let's not even say their measurements, but 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 the, the interpretation of the measurements is just incorrect. And you, you know, it, the, the 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 popular literature tends to accentuate this this claim because the. The more spectacular uh, they are, the more interesting they are for the readers. Right. But there, but there are also other papers that, you know, that, that explain why all this is not, uh, not really so. I mean, or at least that there are more likely, more likely interpretations of, of the same data that. Uh, that you know, I, I can tell you just just one, for example. Okay, so so. What they measure, again, as I mentioned before, in, in clusters of galaxies, are the, the one component of the velocity. Okay, so only the one along the line of sight, which is measurable by Doppler shift. But in order to estimate the mass of these galaxies, they need the three-dimensional velocity. Now, they don't really know that the velocities in the plane of the sky are, are larger than what they measure along the line of sight. For example, if this galaxy specifically is, is rotating, but with such an inclination, you know, it's, it's more or less in the plane of the sky, you wouldn't know it. You will only deduce your, the, the mass just, just based on this one velocity. And it, in fact, there are claims in the literature that this galaxy is rotating, and that there's no problem. You know, it's, it's a, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, yeah, the basic answer is I just don't. I I, and many others, I should say, and there are papers about it. I mean, that, 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 uh, actually, there are much more mundane explanations. Right. In any case, uh, it's a problem for that matter, but never mind. That, that's not mine. Okay. <laughs> and then um, there's a question that's occurred many times in the literature and then uh, in my audience, Tim Johnson, who's a, a friend of the show, uh, listens to the show. He's asking, can you share your view on why the bullet cluster is a challenge for Mond and how can it be explained by Mond? So first of all, what is the bullet cluster? I'll show a picture of it on the screen. So the bullet cluster was not, was, uh, so let me just start. So the bullet cluster is a, a, a cluster of actually a pair of clusters that have undergone a collision. We see them just a few hundred uh, I think million years after they actually the centers went through each other. Okay, we see them on the sky. What you see here is, uh, I think the X-ray picture Okay. Uh, these, these two clusters con contain gas, hot gas. This gas radiates uh, more or less in, in rent again uh, in, in X-rays. Mm -hmm. You can see that. And uh, 
uh, this map basically tells you uh, where uh, much of the baryons are. The, the baryons are the standard metal, so uh, in clusters, they, it is known to be dominated by, by the hot gas. So, so essentially, uh, essentially, they tell you where, where, the, where the baryons are. Now, uh, what well, you can also uh, study this, this uh, double cluster, the so-called weak gravitational lensing, by, by using the uh, distortion of, of, of the images of galaxies that are far behind in the club, in the background behind this cluster. Right, so these are the two sort of bluish things. So the, the reddish things are what we just saw before. The XA, the XA emission from the hot gas, and this is where where, where the, the hot gas is. The bluish things are where the galaxies in the clusters are. So the cluster just went to each other. Imagine yourself that, uh, that the two clusters before they collided contain this gas and galaxies mixed together. But once they collide, because the, the, the gas cloud essentially cannot very easily go through each other because they're sticky, so they stay more or less uh, near the center, but the, the, the clumps of galaxies in the cluster just went through. And you, you see them as these two okay. So, uh, however, from, from studies of the of, uh, distortion of, 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 of images of galaxies behind the scene, we can tell where the dark matter is. Okay, we can tell, uh, we can map essentially the, the total matter in the system. And it turns out to be where the galaxies are. Mm -hmm. Okay, so more uh, where the bluish things are. So the claim is the following. No, 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 you say, but you know, according to more the, the, the claim. According to Mont, you, you know, you should find sort of the discrepancy, or you should find this phantom or putative dark matter where the variants are. Yes. So, but in this in this in this system, they seem to be not where most of the variants are, which is the reddish things, but where the bluish things. Are. Okay. So mm -hmm. that was was branded uh, as, as the proof of the existence of dark, of dark matter. So uh, the, 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 the answer, our one answer is, uh, tries to answer is, is uh, several choices. So first, first of all, the problem was not that we, we already knew from the 90s that one does not explain the way completely that the, the mass discrepancy in clusters of galaxies. Okay, this is still a standing issue with Mon, but even much before the bullet clusters and in analysis later, before whatever, there are several analyses that show that if you apply MON to clusters, so in, in individual clusters, not one mm -hmm. that underwent collision, there's also a, a discrepancy. Uh, it's, it's, let's say, a discrepancy of a factor of 10, let's say. So the visible matter is just a tenth of what's needed uh, to, to supply the gravity. Right. So you, you need like nine times more dark matter than, than you have visible matter. If you apply more to this system, it reduces the, the discrepancy greatly, but it still leaves a discrepancy of a factor of two roughly. So you, you would still need in these clusters, not, not speaking about the, the bullet now, but just just about the isolated tens of and tens of clusters, you would still need some component that we haven't discovered yet. So some people prefer uh, to say that this is maybe sterile neutrinos that, that can fall into clusters, but not into galaxies, because you know, the, the famous argument that they are too light and, uh, to fall into galaxies. But my, my own, uh, my, look, okay, my own uh, explanation is that yes, clusters still contain some baryonic matter that we haven't detected yet. It's not an issue at all because you only need, you know, as much as you already see. And it could be in a component that hasn't been discovered yet. Could be, I mean, that starts from cell population, could be called, uh, called gas class. There are quite a few papers on this. And, you, you know, we, you may know that there is also something called the missing variance problem. 
Yeah. We think we think what you know, we think we know what the total number of violence in the universe is. You know, this from nucleosynthesis, formation of the like elements and so on. So we think four percent of the closure density of the universe is baryons. But where are they? I mean a tally of of baryons as we know them today can account for roughly fifty percent of the baryons. Okay, so where, where are the, the other fifty percent? And all that you need to explain away the the problem is more clusters is just about five percent if you sum of all clusters and all that you need in clusters, you, you need about five percent of the baryons that you now exist. So it's a small it's a small fraction of, of the of the baryon budget to do that. So it could easily be. I'm not saying that I know that this is the answer, but it could be a mundane answer. Mm-hmm. We would very much like to know. It is still an issue. I consider it an issue, an open question in one, but one that at least can have a simple explanation. Mm-hmm. And and I should say that okay, if you now know if you if you take what you learned from from single clusters, right? So the cluster, then the the, the bullet cluster just behaves in the way that you expect. Because, uh, because this extra component has to be non dissipative for other reasons, and so when the two classes go together uh, and collide, they, 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 this extra component should follow the galaxy, not the galaxy. But anyway, that, that's the explanation. So, um, looking at uh, other challenges uh, to MOND, uh, there are questions about other types of dark matter. Uh, you just brought up one type, you know, sterile neutrinos or axions. Um, but I often point out there's there's a detection of dark matter, at least that's been claimed uh, for over 22 years, and that's by the DAMA experiment. And I wonder, can you give me your perspective on DAMA? Is it a challenge? Uh, and just more generally speaking, if the liquid noble gas detectors like xenon one ton, which is co-run here at UC San Diego by my friend and colleague and past guest Kai Shuan Ni and friend and past guest Alina April, um, are there uh, challenges to MOND if, uh, if, if DAMA is to be taken seriously? Well, uh, <laughs> let's start by saying that certainly dark matter is detected, then it is a challenge. It's not just a challenge. It's, it's just... Uh, Take the carpet from underneath. No, but if there's that matter, then there's no need for me. But this, this. Sorry, Mari, it's a little hard to hear you. What did you. Uh... I'm saying that if that matter is actually discovered, then certainly it's a challenge. Uh, mm-hmm. If particulate dark matter is detected, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but Dama, I mean, you don't have to ask me, ask anyone else. Even those who believe in that, I don't. I don't think they uh, actually believe in Dhamma. Well, a as, as you may know, it conflicts, uh, you know, by many orders of magnitude with other experiments. That right. Don't, don't find it. There are also, as far as I know, uh, similar experiments using the same type of detect- detectors that claim that they haven't seen anything and. Uh, there are mundane explanations, but, but look, I'm not the right person to ask. Right. I have absolutely no idea of what could go exactly could go wrong with Dama, and I, I don't have a way to find. Yeah. But generally speaking, right? If there if there was a, in other words, is there no possibility that both flowers could bloom, both the dark matter and particulate form, and a modification, um, or is it really one or the other? Well, in principle, it can be, and as you know, I, I watch bits of your interview with, uh, with Sabine Hossenfelder, which at least at some point has advocated or, or endorsed this idea, hybrid idea of superfluid dark matter. Mm-hmm. I should say it's not the first, uh, it, it's the most famous one, because the people involved are, are more vocal, large audience, but, but similar ideas have been just before, for example, by Blanchet from Paris, who suggested that uh, okay, the, the universe is just uh, filled with, uh, with um, a polarized, gravitationally polarized medium, mm-hmm. such that on large scales it works as dark matter, and on small scales it reproduces non. 
And superfluid.com is conceptually at least a, a similar idea is that uh, those galaxies and the universe at large is, is uh, again filled with, with a fluid that could be either in, in a mm-hmm. standard uh, phase, in which case it works as dark matter in the sense that it acts by its gravitational weight, gravitational pull. But that in galaxies, it, it can form a, a superfluid phase, and there it doesn't act mainly by its gravitational pull, but rather it modifies the interaction between baryons, between stars, and so on, so as to reproduce the effects of mond. Now, these are hybrid, hybrid models. That they, they are, I, I don't, uh, I, I can't say that it cannot be, but I don't. I don't like them very much for, the, for several reasons. But on aesthetic ground, you know, it's like the, the, the easiest way out. You see, <laughs> you, you put together, you stick together two different things. You know, if you already have one uh, sort of outrageous idea, uh, you know, you, you want, and, and you see it succeed in, in a large range of phenomena, why not try to improve it so it succeeds? Also? Right. When you put two such things together, you know, they they tend to fail in the region where you stick them, right? Because, okay, this one works here, the other one works there, what happened? And, um, you, you know, this is a common a common thing that, that occurred. Uh, there is, I don't know, it's not very famous that at the time where there was a struggle, let's say, between the Ptolemaean uh, geocentric picture, Mm-hmm. You know, everything goes around the Earth, including the Sun, and the, the Copernican system, where everything goes around everything, but at least the planets go around the Sun. And then uh, the, uh, there seem to be advantages to, diff- to the two things. And so Tiho put put a, a hybrid, suggested the hybrid. Did you know about this? So I know it's very famous, but he said, okay, let, let's have all the planets Yes, go around the yeah. sun, except the Earth. Yeah. But the sun, with all its uh, this entourage of planets, go around the Earth. Yes. So, so it, it actually, it has the benefits of the of the Copernican system, but at least as far as the parallaxes were not yet observed. So, you know, parallaxes were were the, the clinching argument for the Copernican system that we actually by the motion, this apparent motion of things on the sky, we know that it is the Earth that goes around the sun. But anyway, before that, it actually combined the benefits of Copernican system with the, those of the, you know, the sun. You could still be okay with the Bible, right? The sun goes around the Earth, so it could stop at, at Gibbon, and, uh, you know, as the, as the Bible dictated, and it was uh, okay for others. So it was a hybrid. But we, we know we know what, what happened. So, you know, on the static ground, I don't like the hybrids. They, historically, they haven't proven uh, to work. Yeah. And, and it seems that even the superfluid idea is, isn't really doing very well. I mean, even Sabine had recently had a quote of the paper where they claim that it doesn't quite work for rotation curves. Right. <laughs> uh, well, Monty, I know it's getting late there and you've been so gracious with your time and um, and uh, the audience questions, answering all the audience questions. I want to ask you one last question, which uh, is pertinent to the name of the podcast, which comes from one of uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous laws. He actually had four of them and they're controversial, which what's the naming, what's the counting of them. But I want to ask you the one that's pertinent to the name of my podcast, which states the following, the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible. So that's where the name of the podcast comes from. And I want to ask you in the context that I ask all my guests who are so gracious, like you are, uh, I want to ask you, what gave you the courage as a 20-year-old or 30-year-old, if you can go back to uh, your former self and give some advice, some life advice, what would you say to give the courage to go, as you've done, the chutzpah, <laughs> into the impossible? Yes, well, because uh, this theme of possible impossible uh, actually accompanies me along the whole, you know, the way, because 
so many times I've heard this is impossible, this is impossible with Mond. I mean, yeah. so at first they said, okay, fine, Mond works for galaxies, but it will be impossible to explain uh, light bending and gravitational lensing. So it took 20 years, but uh, there was finally a relativistic theory that did get uh, lensing correctly. And, and, and then people say, well, but you can't get the CMB. It's impossible to get the CMB correctly with Mond. Just last year there was a paper by Scorbis and Zlosnik suggesting a relativistic Mond theory that does reproduce the CMB fluctuation. So from the very beginning, for me, this uh, possible, impossible, like the following one, you know, when I started thinking about it, I, I, well, I didn't think it would be impossible, but I was sure that the probability is very low that I will actually be able to modify the laws of Of course, I'm, I'm like everyone else, not crazy. <laughs> so I started, I had this, this idea, initial idea, I said to myself, well, I'm sure in a day or two I just show that it is wrong. It's impossible. I mean, it's, it's highly unlikely, at least that's a bad but And then I work, I work because, because it impinges on so many phenomena. I'm sure I'll find something wrong. It didn't happen after a few days. I worked it out again and again. I invested more time and so on. And, and every time, I think that initially looked impossible, or at least highly improbable, turned out to be possible. And uh, yeah, if, if, if it, it's any, of course, it doesn't, this way of argumentation doesn't work. So in the individual, I, I don't know how good an idea is to just tell entirely impossible, because chances are in any case, if it looks impossible, it's probably at least improbable, so you may be wasting your time. Mm-hmm. But as a community, certainly, I mean, some of us should try the, what looks like impossible. Otherwise, we're not going to get beyond the boundary of right. already, right? So, so for individual, so what is good as a general advice for the, for the community? The community should always send, or at least should accept such people, you know, with open open minds. At least mm-hmm. not give trouble when they're trying to do something like this, because it's very important for the community to explore beyond, you know, what appears impossible. Absolutely. Very good. Well, Mati, Todaraba. I want to wish you Laila Tov. Thank you for coming on. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Yes. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us in this probe of all things that go dark in the night. We covered the history and challenges of, of Mond and challenges to Mond, uh, as well as the future. And I hope you'll stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have him back on again. And uh, it'll be quite a treat to have on people, as I often do, that have alternative views. I've done interviews with people like Anna Aegis and Paul Steinhardt, interviews with Jayant uh, Narlikar, proponent of the steady state or quasi-steady state theory, as opposed to the Big Bang Theory, the others bouncing models, Neil Turok as well. So I'm not afraid, and you shouldn't be either, to probe alternates to the standard orthodoxy of cosmology, particle physics, and beyond. So um, I want to thank you all for tuning in. Reminder, you want to see the video of this episode. If you're listening on audio only, please do uh, check out my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating, where I uh, show some visuals from this episode. And that will help explain some of the lacunae, the gaps in your understanding, perhaps. And speaking of audio episodes only, uh, I want to take this time to, uh, to say thank you to those of you who have left reviews of the podcast recently. I just got one from Summon with the... Uh, very catchy uh, name, Beef Stew, uh, who says in his or her title, uh, interesting science sprinkled with dad jokes. Okay, that's that's kind of the vibe I'm going for. Not all the time. Um, as I say, you know, I always have to have a quote of dad jokes. Actually, I didn't give one today. What's a dad joke for today? Uh, let me think about one. Oh, yeah. How about this? Um, have you heard of the black hole diet? Yeah, that's right. You just eat light. Okay, so Beef Stew says Brian is incredibly smart. Thank you. And talk to some of the smartest people on the planet. He also has a seemingly endless supply of dad jokes that makes me smile and or groan. I'm sure you're just all groaning, but I do hope you will leave a review just like Beef Stew 
If you're doing so on Apple uh, Podcasts, you can do it very easily, along with a rating. I'm trying to get to 500 reviews, and your uh, review will help me. We're, we're getting close, but we need your help. And it's really the only feedback that I ask for, other than joining my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list, where I have giveaways, including things like my recently produced dialogue on the two world systems by Galileo Galilei, which I read with Frank Wilczek, Fabiola Giannotti, and Lucio Picciarillo and Carlo Rovelli and Jim Gates. You don't want to miss that. I give them away for free on occasion. I also give away space dust if you're here in the USA. But uh, to do that, just go to my mailing list, briankeating.com slash list. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Dr. Brian Keating. And uh, please do leave a review. It's really the only thing I can ask for. I try to give much more than I ask in return. And I hope you appreciate that because I love doing what I'm doing and listen to the Impossible Podcast. And we will do it for many years to come with your help. So thank you very much for going into the impossible with me, yours truly, your pandemic podcast host, still recovering from the lingering effects of COVID on society, but we're going to get through this together. And thanking you for not being afraid to take an unorthodox view of guests such as today's guest, Mordecai Milgram. Thank you so much and have a wonderful week until we meet again. Mm-hmm.